It's a pleasure to be with you as always, covering for Pastor Ben, who's out sick, so pray for him and his family, and there's probably a, maybe a couple other families out sick today. But we're going to continue on with our series called um, Behold and Build, as I don't know what's going on there, as you can see behind me. And we're going to kind of approach this as we've been crescendoing in the series, we've been looking at um, putting deep roots, beholding Christ, being transformed from glory to glory. We saw that a few weeks ago. And we looked at individual discipleship a couple weeks ago. And we looked at family discipleship in, in the, the context and sphere of building the kingdom within your own home. And now all those things sort of peak, in a sense, with us all collectively building the church, right? So in order to build the church... We have to have all those spheres of life brought into alignment, brought under the lordship of Christ. We're not individuals trying to build our own walls. We have our own lives that we must submit to Christ. We have our own families that, as we saw last week, we must submit to Christ, love our wives, wives submit to their husbands. But now we bring all those spheres under the sovereignty of the Lord God Almighty, and we say, Lord, all of this is yours. How then, as your people, do we build your church? And I want to approach this from a couple different passages. So I'm going to kind of have us have a bit of a hybrid message, if there is such a thing, as this is a topical message. And I want to spend some considerable time to introduce this subject of building and to kind of paint a picture for us of three essential questions that I want us to answer today. So if you have notes and if you're, if you're taking notes, if you could write these three things down, I think that might be helpful for you. They're very simple, very practical, and very straightforward. Why the church requires you and your family to be built. Second, why you and your family require the church to be built. And then thirdly, how you and your family can build the church. Straight down the middle. That's where we'll be going today. Uh, as we pray, if you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and then we'll be concluding our time together in Hebrews chapter 10. But for now, turn to 1 Corinthians 12 and let's pray. Father God, we, we love you. We are not nearly thankful enough for what you have done for us as we just sang. But Lord, you have given us a spirit of joy and a spirit of thankfulness even though it's imperfect, for we see you dimly. We do see you, and we love you, and we want to know you more. We want to be used by you more. We want to grow in grace and knowledge. So, Father, this morning we are here, I believe, all of us, sovereignly brought by you for this great purpose, to continue the building project of your church. We ask now that any spiritual warfare that might be going on in our hearts and in our minds would be calmed, that you would speak to your people, that you'd use me as a fragile instrument to do so, and that you'd be exalted in all that we do this morning for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to be looking at um, what might be considered by some to be somewhat of a sticky topic, a controversial subject, depending on your denominational background or how you grew up or what your experience of church life might be. But my emphasis with coming out of 1 Corinthians 12, and I want to make this clear up front, is not to get into the weeds this morning on the nuances of spiritual gifts, though we will address them. We have to address them on some level. Uh, we will address them in the broad sense. We will not get overly specific, though there is a certain place and benefit for that, uh, to flesh out this morning and have us go on a gift hunt to try to identify or self-identify what we think all of our spiritual gifts might be. That is for another time. But I do want to talk about the essential nature of spiritual gifts, and I want to flesh it out from 1 Corinthians 12, because I think many Christians have a lot of angst around this topic, particularly as it relates to their own life and, and also as it relates to the church. What is my role in the church? Am I just someone who shows up and occupies a pew or a seat on a Sunday? What do I bring to the table? What can I bring to the table, and what should I bring to the table in the church community? These are all big questions that need real answers. And as people of God, we need to answer them. And thankfully, we're not left in the dark as to what those answers might be. God has them readily available for us in his word. 
But I just want to qualify that this is not a gift hunt message. This is not for us to get introspective and turn inward and say, what are my spiritual gifts and itemize them all and take a personality test and figure out what your next ministry might look like. This is to help us collectively see that you have a gift and you probably have more than one. We're going to see that from the text. I remember as a kid playing football and in one particular game, uh, the quarterback of the opposing team, he took off with the ball and I think I was playing defensive end at the time and I chased him down and I tackled him. And I remember tackling him and I I grabbed him and I wrapped him up and I kind of twisted him with my body to bring him down and he landed on my thumb. I remember getting off the pile and realizing oh something didn't go right with that tackle. And, you know, the adrenaline of the game, and we're in the fourth quarter, and, you know, the game must go on kind of thing. And I'm playing both offense and defense at the time as a starter. And I looked at my thumb, and it's twice the size as my other hand. And I'm like, well, something there certainly didn't go right. I'd never broken a bone before in my life, so I really didn't have a clue, like 15 at the time. So the adrenaline kind of kicks in, and I f- complete the game, and I finish the game. My whole left side is numb. I can't really feel anything. I'm trying to snap the football. I can barely hold it finish the game, go home, kind of ice it, wake up in the morning, do my regular thing, go to practice the next day, try to hit somebody, realize I'm a practical no use to this team. I can't make any contact. My whole left side is numb. So needless to say, I realized a day later that I had broke the thumb at the joint in half. And that was the end of my season. And as a kid, it, it seemed traumatic in the moment. Many of you have broken far worse things than your thumb, I'm sure. I've had a pretty innocuous upbringing, so that was the worst that's ever happened to me. But I realized in that moment that a small member of the body can have a big impact on the whole body. I I realized that something as simple as a thumb can wreck and change the entire trajectory of your day, of your week, of your month. And we can all, I think, relate to situations in our lives where a small thing has catastrophic implications. And in the same way as we approach the subject of building the church We come at it from the lens of 1 Corinthians 12, and we realize that membership in the body of Christ is holistic in nature, not individualistic. Holistic in nature, not individualistic. And we have stressed this a lot up here at Rivertown Church, and we're going to do so again today, so bear with us. That membership in the body of Christ is interconnected. It is a team sport, if you will, to use that metaphor and analogy. It is not an individualistic game that we are playing. So as we look at 1 Corinthians 12, again, this is going to be an overview of the chapter. We're going to hit some high points, and then we're going to bounce to Hebrews chapter 10 to close, where we're going to bring some real-life practical application to fleshing out what it looks like to be the church, to build the church, and to sanctify in our hearts this thing called the gathering, specifically. We're We're going to flesh that out. So let's read 1 Corinthians 12 from verse 1 down to verse 3. He says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. You see, Paul is seeking in this chapter, if you don't know the context of Corinthians, to address from chapter 7 on specific questions and concerns that this Corinthian church that he planted in this cosmopolitan, pagan, worldly city had regarding the order of worship, regarding the Lord's table, regarding marriage, regarding gifts, regarding maturity. They had all these questions, and they had a lot of issues in this church. They had a lot of division. They had a lot of people that were coming from a prestigious background that had status and that had money and that had a sense of propriety about themselves that uh, caused a lot of problems in this church plant because they were comparing each other with each other, and they were looking at each other's gifts to sort of rate who had the best gifts, who had the most popular gifts. It was like high school on steroids, this church plant. And Paul is bringing clarity to the mess. And in chapter 12, he's addressing this uh, head-on with spiritual gifts. But the first thing we see here is that he's trying to unite the church around their central confession, okay? And this is really important just as a way of introduction because the confession of the church is maybe a bit reductionistic to say this, but it's, it's certainly true, that Jesus is Lord, The confession of the church is that Jesus is Lord. And Paul is reminding them 
uh, to say, when you were pagans, you were led astray to those idols which didn't even communicate to you, but through the preached word of the gospel, the Holy Spirit has brought the gospel to bear into your soul, and you have been awoken from death to life, and now in the Holy Spirit, you confess that Jesus is Lord, and you can't do that apart from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bears witness to Christ. The Holy Spirit points to Jesus. It exalts Jesus. That's one of the uh, central functions of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, both in the individual and in the corporate church, to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, to make much of Christ. And Paul is saying that this is your confession, that you divided church, who is busy comparing yourselves with yourselves, understand that your unity is in Christ that your profession and confession as a church is that Jesus is Lord. So this is the cry of the church and the foundational grounds for our unity here even this morning. We not only profess the same Lord, but we possess the same Spirit, which always exalts Christ. So he wants to settle this in their minds. But then he goes on in verses 4 through 11, and I want to read that now. He says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. He says in verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who are portions to each one individually as he wills. This is a mouthful. So first we see unity around our confession. Now, again, if you're taking notes, we see diversity without autonomy really important. Diversity without autonomy. What does that mean? Paul highlights this section as extremely important because spiritual gifts are just that, spiritual gifts. Okay, track with me here. This means a few things, that they are not natural gifts, but supernatural. They're not merited, but given. They don't operate by the arm of the flesh. They operate by the power of the Spirit. These are spiritual gifts in a synopsis, okay? So Paul is saying that these spiritual gifts that they have come in many different sizes, many different shapes. There is a lot of diversity within the body of Christ. And I don't know about you, but I love the fact personally that there's diversity within the body of Christ. There's not only diversity within the body of Christ here today at Rivertown. There's diversity in the body of Christ globally. There's diversity in the body of Christ internationally and in in the state of Vermont. But the point is, is that we might be diverse, but our unity is around what we profess and what we believe, which is Jesus Christ as Lord. But within that framework of unity, there is a diversity of gifts, and there is a diversity of ministry, and there is a diversity of particular strengths and weaknesses that God gives individuals, or particular strengths, excuse me, that God gives to his church and, of course, this laundry list of gifts uh, is, is not exhaustive. There's other places in Romans 12 um, and uh, Ephesians 4 where the, uh, the offices of the church are mentioned, in particular gifts as related to uh, acts of service and acts of prophecy, and all of those things can be fleshed out at another time. But the purpose of bringing this home to us this morning is to understand that spiritual gifts— are gifts of grace given sovereignly by God's own will to each individual believer for the purpose of building up the church in the common good, or you could say communal good, as Paul says in verse 7. So again, they're not earned, but given. All of grace and not of works. But it's significant here because Paul uses Trinitarian language on purpose when he describes these, when he says in verse 4 and 5, now there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit, there are varieties of service but the same Lord, and then in verse 6, there are varieties of activities but it is the same God who empowers them all 
in everyone. So we see that the, the manifestation of these spiritual gifts are gifts of grace diversely distributed by the Lord Jesus via the Holy Spirit at regeneration, at your conversion. So they're not something that you sort of have to wait for some heavenly download to begin to use, okay? Sometimes we think that, man, if I was just gifted, right, if, like, God clearly gifts some people and then I just kind of have, like, I have no gifts. I'm just kind of like the basic Christian, right? And that's such a lie because God gives each of us, if we belong and are united to Christ through faith and baptism, have the Holy Spirit, okay? And to have the gifts that are mentioned in this chapter and other chapters is simply to affirm that you already have the Holy Spirit. So you're not looking for extra grace or extra merit, or you're not looking to earn these things by being such a good Christian. Simply put, God has given these things of his own volition, and he has given them to each of us a portion of faith and grace so that we might use them within the body. But the Trinitarian language is very significant because he wants to show the Corinthians that their gifts come from God and are not their own. But notice this, the right use and stewardship of all spiritual gifts in the body of Christ is meant to reflect an image, God, who is unity within diversity in the Trinity. Okay? God is unity within diversity in the Trinity, in his own person, in the Godhead. So the spiritual gifts that God pours out on his body when properly used and properly understood, reflect the Trinitarian God that we serve, who is unity within diversity in the Trinity. So therefore, we must properly understand what spiritual gifts are and begin to exercise them for God's glory, building the church and bringing glory to the Trinitarian God who gave them. As the Father, Son, and Spirit operate in holy and perfect love, unity, and diversity in their function, so the corporate body of Christ is to reflect the beautiful mystery of the Godhead through the enablement and empowerment of God's Spirit in his people, you and I, who shine as lights in the world. So this is really significant to us theologically, but very practically, coming back to what I said a moment ago, these spiritual gifts are not natural, but supernatural. So what do I mean by supernatural? Are they, are they superpowers where we become different like Clark Kent? We change our nine to five and we come out a different person? Is that what we mean by superpowers? Not at all. Or a supernatural? I believe supernatural means that they are spiritually given, but physically embodied. Spiritually given, but physically embodied. So they don't come from you. They don't come from within inside yourself. Now you have a diversity of natural talents, natural gifts, natural strengths. And God can hone those and sharpen those, but those are categorically different in category from spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts come from outside of yourself. They're alien to your natural man. They come through regeneration. They come via the Holy Spirit. When God poured out his spirit on the church at Pentecost at its birth, he gave gifts to men, as Ephesians 4 reminds us of. So this is key because anyone can say, any of us can say here this morning that we have a spiritual gift. But your spiritual gifts, this is really key, and I really believe this very strongly, are identified not merely by a personality test, but by what you do with your life in the context of the community of the saints. This is really important. You can say that, well, I have this gift, and perhaps you do. What is the standard by which we gauge that? How do we know if you have a gift of teaching, if you have a gift of uh, evangelism, if you have a gift of serving, if you have a gift of enablement or mercy or helps or administration? How do you know? Well, outside of your own anecdotal superstitions, the Bible tells us that you will know by their fruits. You will know by what you do. So what is the habit of your life? What have you engaged in within the context of the community of the saints by which the gifts of God's Spirit have been fleshed out and identified by, note this, not yourself, but by other people? It's really important in this, in this understanding of this, 
uh, of these spiritual gifts. Many people want to know their spiritual gifts, but you will never know them apart from being actively engaged in the community of God. And within the community of God, you will need even then the affirmation of other believers in your life that know you well and that see you operate day to day, week to week, to say, you know what, bro? You know what, sister? This really is God-given. This is something that you need to fan into a flame. This is something that you need to exercise more. This is something that you need to give more time to or have more opportunity to, to work out. These are things that are of God. They're not just natural giftings. And I think it's really important that we see, as Paul says in verse 7, that each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, meaning it's an embodied gift. It works itself out into the body. It doesn't stay ethereal. It doesn't stay locked away in your head that I have this self-conscious identity that I am this kind of a Christian. Well, what are you doing with the people of God? How are you operating within the community of the saints? That will tell you a whole lot more than your subjective feelings about what kind of a Christian you think you are. Secondly, these gifts are effective and fruitful, not obnoxious and divisive. When people operate within their God-given, Spirit-enabled, Christ-exalting gifts, Jesus is always glorified, not the individual. And the church is always edified. You may have had experiences with folks who say, well, I'm gifted in this way, and every time they put their hand to it, Chaos ensues, or division happens, or man gets exalted. And if that's a repeated theme in someone's life, then they're not only operating in the flesh, but they may not be living and leaning into the gifts that they think they have. The gifts that God gives his church are gifts that build, gifts that bind, gifts that help, gifts that lead, gifts that serve, Gifts that make the whole body healthy, not sick. So we have to understand this. And the Greek word for gifts is charismata, where we get our English word charismatic from. And I think we need to distinguish these two and discern them rightly. For though the etymology is from this word charismata, they mean different things in our vernacular, and they mean different things in our lives. For some leaders and Christian servants, they fall really badly because their natural charisma leads them and guides them in all that they put their hand to. They have such strong type A leadership gifts, whatever it might be, maybe administration or, or just leadership in general, that uh, they kind of get out above their skis and they fall on their face because their character does not balance their charisma. They're out of balance. And many times these Individuals hold on to positions of influence and power because of their charisma instead of their character. But we need to develop our spiritual charisma or our spiritual charismata, to use the right word, and not be led by our flesh and our old man. We want to live lives that are led by the Spirit of God whose voice corporately and individually exalts Jesus and loves the church and seeks always its good and welfare, not our own. So Corinth was full of this kind of division because, again, they were comparing their gifts with one another and jockeying for position and power. But this is what Paul is writing against. So we see that the manifestations of these gifts are diverse, but we are not autonomous gift holders. We have diversity but not autonomy. So that requires of us a holy stewardship so whether you know here this morning what your particular gifts are or not, again, as I mentioned, is not the main point of this message, but to simply say to you that you have gifts if you belong to Christ. And you need to exercise those gifts. You need to steward those gifts or they're going to atrophy and they're going to turn inward and they're going to hurt you and they're going to rob the body of its proper blessing because God has given you a holy stewardship. He's given you grace that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 is a stewardship. It's a ministry of stewardship. Uh, managing and handling and properly using the grace of God in our lives. So we see the need to not just identify what our gifts are, but to properly use them and exercise them in the corporate community of the saints. It is so essential for our personal health and the health of the body that we seek to build. So in these verses, I want to note that these gifts also do not function in a way where you and I sort of carry our bag of gifts, 
around with us, and we can just conjure them up as we feel the need, especially as it relates to gifts of healing, some of these more miraculous gifts. And I'm not a sensationist, so I believe that the Spirit is operating in the church today through the full gamut of his function. Um, That's my personal conviction. But nonetheless, I believe that these gifts are manifested in the body of Christ at the right time to build the body in the right moment. So they're they're gifts that are apt for the need of that particular body. I think so often sometimes we kind of want to be identified with a certain gifting or a certain lane in which we feel comfortable. And God says, no, this church needs these gifts. And if God has sovereignly brought you here to this church then you have to believe him that he has given you as an individual gifts for this church, not for some other ethereal church that you'd like to be a part of, but for this church. So that requires us to, again, seek Christ and say, Lord, how would you manifest your spirit through me within this local church? Not the church that I came from, not the church I wish I had, not the church that I think I should have, but the church I do actually have. How can we serve Jesus in that context? So these manifestations from verse 7 are brought about by God through his people to meet specific needs and ailments within the corporate community as God sees fit. No one person can or should take credit for the supernatural manifestations of God's spirit working within his church. He alone gets the glory. In Romans 12, verses 3 through 8, remind us, as Paul again writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Because having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. You need to underline that. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So these spiritual gifts are like muscles in the body that atrophy without use. If you ever had a muscle atrophy, it takes a long time to recover it. The need to be exercised to stay healthy and for the church to reap the benefit. So spiritual gifts that are never connected to the body, notice that, never connected but independent and autonomous, will quickly atrophy. They will rob the individual of fruitfulness and joy. They will rob God's church of the right exercise of the gift. And God's bride will be deprived of a world of blessing, as will you. So all of this is to say, and to answer the first question, which is why the church requires you and your family. Now we will see why you and your family require the church. And that brings us to our third point, which is interdependence as opposed to hyper-individualism. Interdependence as opposed to hyper individualism. And we will look at verses 12 through the rest of the chapter, and then we'll move on to Hebrews. We see that in verse 12, Paul writes, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the feet, I have no need of you. 
On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. There's a mouthful here, but we're going to just overview it. Notice this, that through faith in Christ and your Trinitarian baptism, we have entered the covenant community of God, and we now belong to Christ and each other. You are no longer your own, church. Many of you know that. You are no longer your own. Does that mean it removes all individualism, that we are now just an androgynous whole? Of course not. But within the community of God, we are interdependent versus independent. This is so critical to not only grasp intellectually, but to live out practically. We have not just joined a church, but we have joined the church. Okay? Hebrews 12, 22 through 24 says that we have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem into innumerable angels in festal gathering, into the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, into God, the judge of all, into the spirits of the righteous made perfect, into Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We belong to one another, church. We are interdependent, meaning that we require each other. We require the church. We require the preached word in the sacraments, in fellowship, in prayer. These are not negotiable items on our menu where we can say, yeah, I don't like the broccoli today. These are the things of our lives. This is our lifeline to our covenant head, Jesus Christ. If we are going to persevere till the end and be found by Christ as spotless and blameless, it requires... This is really key. It requires that we belong to and participate faithfully in the corporate, eternal community of God. We do not get a free pass or get out of church free card. And for some here today, maybe the language of this text as Paul delineates this kind of bickering that's happening within the Corinthian community saying, you know, I don't need that foot. I don't need that elbow. Maybe you have the same approach in your life where you say, I don't really need to be there. I'm not the pastor. I can watch from home. This isn't a knock on those watching from home for sick reasons and things like that. But that's certainly a disposition, even in our midst, to say, you know what? I'm tired today. Don't really need to be present. Without your presence, you can't embody the gifts God's given you. You can't do it from your couch at home. Without showing up and being there, the church is robbed of its brothers and sisters. The church is walking around like a paraplegic. And that might not mean enough to you, but it means a lot to your brothers and sisters. We have to show up. Now, of course, there's exceptions to every rule. And there's grace for situations that happen in life. Not want to come off as heavy-handed here, but nonetheless... We require the church, and we have to be there when we can be there faithfully. And you may have chosen a church to be a, a member of, but before you chose that church, God chose you to be a part of his eternal church. So when we reject our interdependence, we are doing violence to ourselves in the body of the Lord Jesus, and we hurt the body. We wound the body. You say, yeah, my presence isn't really needed. I'm not that spiritual anyway. That is a lie from hell. You need to be there when the preached word is taught, when God's people meet, when the sacraments are offered, 
when we have the joy of baptizing children into covenant, you need to be there for that because that is a blessing of the Lord. So ultimately, this comes down to man-centered worship is independent. God-centered is interdependent. So we see that God has composed or ordered the body in such a way that it loves and cherishes itself in the same way that a husband and wife love one another, as we saw last week. How do we do this practically? Well, Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16 say this. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The word build and up are the same Greek word. We are building up. We are lifting up. We are edifying the saints. We are growing in grace. So all this then begs us to answer the last question. How can you and your family build the church locally so that each part works properly and builds itself up in love? So now, as I said, we're just overviewing 1 Corinthians 12. We're not doing a deep dive into 1 Corinthians, so we're leaving some meat in the bone. But we're going to jump over now to Hebrews chapter 10 and conclude there with the remainder of our time. So if you'd please turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I want to really give this some hands and feet for us today. I want to drive this home, hopefully. I want to help us see not only that these truths are intellectually true, but they're practically true, and they must be pushed out of our lives. And I think Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19, does a fantastic job of giving us some handholds to move forward. The whole chapter of Hebrews 10, at the danger of being overly simplistic, underscores this fundamental reality that through the once-for-all offered body of the Lord Jesus as our sufficient sacrifice for sins, we who belong to Christ can now willingly offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. And we're going to get into that very specifically because as we come to verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10, Paul, I believe, wrote Hebrews. There's debate on that, but it's neither here nor there. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I want to give us three things right from the text that help us push out into our lives practically what it looks like to operate as the community of God in the world and to honor the communal gathering of the saints that all of our emphasis from the individual to the family stokes this communal gathering. If, if we're individually abiding in Christ and our family's hearth is lit with corporate worship at home throughout the week, with, with family worship at home, then when we bring all of that into the corporate gathering, we are not showing up like inebriated Christians looking for some coffee to wake us out of our slumber. We're showing up as lit Christians who corporately with one voice glorify God in heaven because it's simply what we've been doing all week long. See the connection? This is what we're seeking to build. We're not seeking to build a flash-in-the-pan Sunday morning experience show. This is not the God show. This is the overflow of our internal house being in order as the temple of God. And then our family houses as the temple of God. And then this as the temple of God. So in all these things, Hebrews 10 comes to us and it gives us very practical exhortation in three particular ways. The first thing we must do when we come on the Lord's day is we must draw near with confidence. 
and not condemnation. We must draw near with confidence and not condemnation. For we see that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest, that's Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. As the people of God, we must learn to enter God's house joyfully and confidently because this is your house. You don't go home and say, "Hun, can I come in the door? It's your house. You shouldn't come to church and say, do I belong there? This is your house. It's the house of God, yes, but you belong here. This is your place. Now, we don't live here. We don't sleep on the pews, obviously. But this, is, this belongs to you. So when you reject that, you're saying, I don't belong in God's house. But you do. So we have to learn to come joyfully and confidently, not arrogantly, confidently. Because we are appropriating the sufficiency of the work of Christ on our behalf in redemption. We are not living in the condemnation of the enemy. Some of us, one of the central reasons we forsake the gathering is because we listen to the enemy's voice all week long beating us down. So by the time we get to Sunday, we have no strength left. We say, you know what? The best thing I can do is avoid the light, is avoid the brethren, is avoid the shame, is avoid the guilt. Look, I've been there. That is not the solution. The solution is to hear your father's voice every day of your life. But if you have to drag yourself to church, it is better for your soul than staying home. Here we see the need for confidence. We see the need that the condemnation of the enemy comes at us all day long, does it not? We all know the condemnation of the devil, the shame, the guilt, the lack of unworthiness, the lack of faithlessness, the lack of, I just yelled at my kid for the hundredth time today, feel like a terrible father. I had a fight with my spouse on the way to church. I feel like a total heel. And God says, come anyway. This is the place for grace. This is the place for healing. This is the place for change. But if we don't come confidently, we will never come. If we are going to build the church of Christ here in Brattleboro, which is enemy-occupied ground, we must appropriate, church, a courageous confidence based on the sufficient work of the cross over our lives. We have to foster this. And this means that when we draw near to Christ corporately and individually, we must draw near with our hearts, our minds, and our bodies. It is not enough to merely show up physically if our hearts and minds are worshiping another God. It does no one any good. I'd still rather you be here because God can change that. But drawing near to God as the church requires that we give God all of ourselves in joyful surrender. That's how the text says a true heart means that we are not playing a game, but that we are living openly before God and one another. And, and church, this is a little bit scary. This requires an understanding and a willingness on our part to receive grace and to give grace. We have to receive grace. We have to give grace. If we can't do that, we will always find something better to do. I like how Douglas Wilson puts it when he talks about building Christendom. We draw near to build through blood and water, word and wine. What do I mean by that? What does Doug mean by that? And I will do my best to articulate it. This means that the whole act of drawing near to God personally and corporately is a sanctifying act by which the body of the church, the bride of Christ, is reminded of its cleansing by the blood of Jesus, washed afresh through the preached word, sanctified by the Spirit of God, and strengthened by the sacraments. This is what we're doing today. This is what we do corporately as the people of God. And when all that is happening and the true church comes together with hearts of faith to exalt the Lord Jesus, the church is built. The church is built. This is what we're doing. This is why we must separate, excuse me, sanctify this day as holy. One of the many reasons. So secondly, we're almost done. 
We must learn to possess what we confess. We must learn to possess what we confess. What do we confess? Jesus is Lord over everything. Jesus is Lord over everything. So that means that as we come, we must hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. The corporate gathering of the saints, the saints helps the people of God, you and I, to possess individually what we confess corporately. It helps us possess individually what we confess corporately. In other words, our faith is strongest, is it not, when we are together. It is perfectly natural in keeping with God's good design that that would be the case. Some of us feel bad about that. That, man, I just feel so weak on Thursday. Man, on Sunday, I feel like a rock. That's not strange because you belong here. And secondly, we see that the corporate gathering is the place where we sing what we believe, we listen to what we believe, we talk about what we believe, and we live out with each other what we believe. When we gather as the body of Christ, we are seeking corporately and individually, as Pastor Dave prayed this morning from Ephesians chapter 3, that we would apprehend more of the person and work of Christ. And we are seeking to remind each other of who we are. And we are seeking to hold ourselves before ourselves and all the world the confession that Jesus is Lord. So do you see what's happening when the church gathers now? Do you see what's happening and what's at stake for the kingdom of God on earth when we gather corporately? This is just not the thing we do on Sunday because we've got nothing better to do. This is the act of God breaking down the domain of darkness. And he's using us to do it. So are you building yourselves up on your most holy faith? This is where we learn to possess what we confess. And lastly, as we close, the third thing we see is that we must come considerately. I think I, think I said that right. We must come considerately, not as mere consumers, but contributors to others' spiritual health and vitality. So what does that mean, coming con considerately? When we come to the church gathering, many times, and believe me, I get it, I've been there, you're beat up, you're tired, it's been a hard week, and the weeks just keep piling on, and you kind of drag yourself to church, especially you faithful ones who, who just have made a habit of that in your life, praise God for you. you. Drag yourself to church, you feel weak, you feel tired, you need the word, you're hungry, but man, you just don't want to deal with that elbow. You just don't want to deal with that foot. You don't really want to have a deep conversation because you're just tired. But God expects more of us. God requires more of us. So that's why we, we must come to church thinking not as a consumer, but as a contributor, if we're going to really grow. You can come your whole life as a consumer. The Western church is full of consumers. It's saturated and dripping with the fat of consumerism. But it's very, very weak in the area of contribution. So we need to tip the scales. And many of you do this beautifully, and I want to commend you. Many of you live this in your life. This, if done by every member of our church on the Lord's Day, would create a paradigm shift that I pray we'd never recover from. More specifically, we see that if we are going to do our part to build the church, we must draw near with intentionality to stir up one another to love and good works. Literally, this term that describes Stirring up is to contend with each other like iron sharpening iron. Sparks are going to fly. It's going to be tense at times. It's going to be difficult to have meaningful conversations with your brethren around the things of God. It does not come natural to any of us. I don't care if you're extrovert or introvert. It's easier to talk about the game, to talk about the job, which has its place in fellowship, than it is to talk about the word, to talk about what God's convicting you of, to talk about your failures and your wins, how you could use prayer, how you need grace. It's really hard to talk about those things. It's easier to just come and go. Come and go. Get your, get your message for the week and go. That's not what we're doing. When we come that way, we come in the spirit of Cain from the story of Cain and Abel. We say to God, in effect, am I my brother's keeper? That's what we say when we come that way. Cain was a murderer and John tells us that we cannot say we love God while we hate and murder in our hearts, our minds, in our minds, our brethren in Christ. We must draw near, considering others is more important than ourselves. For some of us, that may mean talking less and listening more. 
For others, it might mean talking more, listening less. And for others, it might just seem stepping outside of yourself to encourage your brother and your sister. It can mean a lot of things for all of us, but it certainly means that we have to come considering, thinking actively with intention how to stir each other up to good works and love. So I encourage you in closing to come to the corporate gathering prayerfully, humbly, and considerately of others. There is a place to come in as a wounded sheep. We've all come in as wounded sheep, and we're here for that all day long. But as we mature and grow in grace, we want to come as healthy sheep. We want to come as people of God that say on the way into the door, who can I talk to today? Who can I love on today? Who can I bless today? Who can I help today? And what do I need to do to get out of my own way to make that a reality? Being transparent is, of course, difficult. But in all of it, we should be asking the question, how can we pursue love and good works one to another in the communities in which we live based around the individual gifts that God has distributed among his church? We will not all have the same answer or opportunities, but we will all have something to do. So lastly, and I'll be quiet, the habitus of our lives should be marked not by an absence on the Lord's day, but a spiritually embodied presence that willingly and joyfully lifts its hands, its hearts, and its mind to Christ to seek the welfare of his people in the place that they find them. So what is your habitus? What is your habit? Is your habit to be with the saints? As the psalmist says, there's no other place I'd rather be than in the courts of God. Let that be our prayer all the days of our life. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your grace. We thank you that across the board, we, as your people, cherish the sufficiency of Christ. And we know that in all of these things, we are not sufficient unto ourselves. We know how far we fall from the standard of your word. But you have not left us to our own devices. You have called us higher. And you have put within us the spirit of God to enable us to go higher. To enable us to attain and apprehend with all the saints what is the height and depth and breadth of the love of God in Christ. Lord, this is why we are here. Help us, Father, be the church we're called to be. And we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.